Rio de Janeiro with a big man. Welcome to Frio de Janeiro. This is a bit man. On this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Craig Foster. He is a former player with and captain of the Australian men's national football team, the Socceroos. Craig is also a highly respected media presenter, a global advocate for diversity and social harmony. Just three openers before we get into the main course. Number one for context, I have spoken to Craig before and it was back in 2012 when me and some mates hosted a world football show on the radio. I also ran into Craig briefly at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. I was just a fanboy, but he happily stopped to have a good chat on the street. Despite all of this, I was still nervous early on in the chat. And that's because growing up as a football fan in Australia, SBS were the network showing the big games and their iconic unit of football journalists such as Les Murray, Johnny Warren, Craig Foster were absolute football authority figures and very influential for me. Now, number two is for you. I've been doing some research on how to achieve the best sound quality while working from home. And a few audio journalists around the world have been talking about blanket fortresses. So I thought I'd give this a go for this interview. Craig was sharing his Skype video with me. I couldn't share mine because I was in the home studio surrounded by blankets. I had a pedestal fan, an ironing board, a few other implements around me that were there to create this blanket fortress. So I really hope that you appreciate the lengths that I went to to achieve the best sound quality for your ears. Thirdly, and finally, before we move on to the main course, I just want to say a big thank you for your support of Frio de Janeiro so far. We're eight shows in, we've had some fantastic guests, and I really look forward to continuing to provide you interviews from exceptional people. The best thing you can do is share the show with people you know. Now let's head into it. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Here's Craig Foster. Craig, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Frio de Janeiro today. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, that's okay. You know, I've joined you before a few years ago, so it's a a long time between discussions, so to speak, but it's a good time to chat. For sure. And many of our listeners would be familiar of you through your media work. It feels like you've been a a football mentor to many of us, but I wanted to start with your early, early days. Um, What was it like growing up in Lismore, New South Wales? Well, idyllic, really. Um, You know, back in those kind of early 70s, uh, up to mid 80s, when I left at quite a young age to go down to the AIS, um, you know, all I recall really is just friendships, you know, wonderful time, playing sport. Um, you know, lifelong friendships that have endured from that time. I mean, there's a bunch of uh, people, guys and girls, who, you know, we started at four, the age of four in preschool up there, and then we went to primary school and on to high school, and we're still friends today. So, you know, those are, you know, 45-plus-year friendships, and that's really just the type of place it is. Community is extremely important in a regional country area like Lismore, northern New South Wales. How did football enter your life, Craig? Uh, in the country areas, you know, typically uh, young people, or certainly did, I am not sure if it's still the case, but played a whole heap of sports, um, particularly at school. And, you know, those who are talented uh, in sport per se, of course, we'd spread our time across a bunch of them. So, you know, my father was a very talented cricketer. He was an outstanding opening representative batsman. 
Uh, he was a quite brilliant tennis player. You know, people up there say could have been a professional, but he shelved all of that in order to look after his three sons and give them the opportunity in sport. And that's one reason why I fought so hard to try and play for the country. You know, often when you see an athlete, you 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 know you don't know what's or you know all of this work that's gone in behind and all the people who've supported them. But my family were a big factor in that. You mentioned that uh, you have two brothers that played NSL ended up going on to play NSL. Uh, did you all play yeah. in the same local club together? What was your first local club? Yeah, we our club was called uh, Ganelaba uh, FC. It's called Ganelaba Hornets today, and we had our fiftieth anniversary of the club just last year. I flew back up home to speak to everyone and show my support. Uh, my elder brother Paul's only 18 months older. We actually went to the AIS together as well. We were on scholarship at the same time. So we were very close in age. He was a more talented player. He was quite a brilliant goal scorer, actually. Um, but, you know, everyone's life works out differently. And, um, you know, we have different challenges in sport that we have to face. And, you know, he, he chose other, other ways and, and ended up in Asia playing. My, our younger brother was about five and a half years younger. So we didn't actually play with him. And, in fact, we left when we were 15 or 16 because the scholarships in those years to the RAS were at that, you know, mid-teen age, and so he was only 10. So, you know, um, my younger brother was basically at that time someone who we used to beat up on mostly, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, in among, you know, three brothers, it was the older two were fighting and the young one was just a, a lot younger. So, actually, later when I became a pro and I was when I was playing in Asia, I think it was, I flew back home. And so I would have been 21, my younger brother would have been 16, and I came back uh, in the off-season one year, um, bought him a ticket to Hawaii, and we went for uh, two weeks, two and a half weeks to Hawaii to spend time together. As I said to him, listen, I left when I was 15, 16, and, and uh, you know, it's time to reconnect. So I took my younger brother on a, on a holiday for a few years um, in order to just be able to spend some time with him. What was it like when you guys were watching football together? Because obviously when you are young, you, you develop your formative experiences and, and your, your heroes, watching those amazing tournaments when you're a, a junior. Uh, what was it like watching football together? Yeah, watching football together, you mean in the, in the family with, uh, with our guys? Or? Yeah, who, who were you supporting? Uh, was it, yeah. Were you all together supporting the same team or was there a bit of rivalry yeah. there? So we, we were up in the country there where, in actual fact, and this is, I guess, an irony, but it's kind of why it works so well also, is I didn't get SBS when I was young. SBS wasn't in Lismore on the far north coast of New South Wales. It was actually not on the, not on the television there. We didn't have the signal, quite literally. And therefore, we, you know, we grew up with a bit of ABC, um, you know, a bit of rugby league on the television. Um, there wasn't too much AFL in those times up in, up in that area either. That was very much Victorian back in those years. So I grew up with, on, on domestic television, rugby league, and I used to know Kevin Hastings from the Roosters, and, and I used to think uh, that, you know, some of those guys were pretty um, skilled, and um, uh, Cronin and the, Mick Cronin and these kind of people um, who my dad, you know, thought were wonderful. <laughs> uh, we, were, we used to watch cricket endlessly with the family. You know, my, my father had three brothers and two sisters, actually, off a farm, a, a dairy farm, and the three brothers were highly talented cricketers. In fact, my father, Kevin, and his brother, George, opened the batting for the uh, kind of regional side for, God, I don't know, probably 20 years together, the two of them, and they were quite brilliant batsmen, great, great competitors. 
Uh, and so every time the family got together, and we used to get together with their parents, our grandparents, almost every Sunday. You know, we'd go out to the homestead and we'd be, you know, it was very, very tight family, um, very kind of community-driven, you know, everyone supporting each other. And they would just put the TV on, this old television, and they would watch the tests, you know. So they used to revere, you know, Ian Chappell and all these people. So every time I meet, you know, Chappelle and others, we do some work in the refugee space, I always say to him, quick, give me a quick photo I sent to the old man because, you know, he just loves him. But our diet of football, so football was very much for us about playing experience. We didn't have SBS. We didn't really know the NSL. It was, we just loved playing. We started to excel as young players, make representative teams. But our only diet then was on a Monday night, which was match of the day out of uh, the BBC. And we used to paste that. We used to tape it religiously on beta or VHS, whatever we had. And we would watch it and watch it and watch it and watch it. You know, we didn't have all the Sunday shows of SBS or, or really none of that. Uh, so I used to love um, uh, Tottenham. And I used to think Glenn Hoddle was an absolute master. And, and, of course, I was right. You know, he was an absolute master. Uh, and that was part of, you know, the education coming through was also seeing how people like Glenn Hoddle and others were treated within that football environment, you see. that All of that was, was part of my kind of later work because those creative, brilliant players were quite often not valued within the, the framework or the context of what British football was at that time. Of course, it's, it's uh, you know, completely different today, which is great to see. So what was your first World Cup that you watched? Were you able to uh, tune yeah, in in some the, way? Yeah, 82. I can't, I, I can't be certain, I have to check, but I'm pretty sure 82 was on ABC, right? So 1982, Aspana, you know, with the tango, the tango Aspana, the greatest football ever devised in the history of the world <laughs> right? um, for which I had to go down to my local sporting goods store um, I can't quite remember what it was called now they, they and uh, lovely people down there and I had to get them I had to beg them to order a Tango Aspana into Lismore from who knows where. I don't know where they got it from. And I had to, I had to wait a month for this Aspana to turn up uh, after the 1982 World Cup. But that World Cup was a wondrous World Cup. You know, it was, the best, it was the best World Cup as a young player to watch because you had to fall in love in the game. You know, that was 82 was Telly, um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, it was the Brazil team. Telly you know, Santana. Like, yeah, Teddy Sanana, and, and um, it was the Brazil team, um, you know, Zico, Eder, uh, Junior, you know, these guys. I mean, uh, and, and the doctor, you know, the doctor was there. Um, and so Dr. Socrates, you know, scoring these incredible goals and the way they passed the ball and, you know, and it was, had this Spanish feel and the music and, and that's the reason why, um, you know, and that's how we come to the game, well, all sport, but how we come to the game as fans. And that's why since then... The, the documentary on that 1982 World Cup, uh, which, if I'm not wrong, was voiced by um, the great actor, Scottish actor, who was a James Bond at one time. Uh, that that uh, It's called Gold, and it's the story of the 1982 World Cup. It's one of the all-time historic, great sporting documentaries. So that was a catalyst to inspire you. Um, do you remember your first professional opportunity and how that arose? Well, we went to the AIS and, you know, at the AIS, um, we, um, 
you know, we, we kind of grew up as players. You know, we played in the Victoria Premier League and, and you know, we had a really talented, really talented team. Uh, that, you know, Paul Trimboli and others. And there was a good 18 months, couple of years together, growing up together. And, um, and then I went off to Sydney, Croatia. And from there, you know, I meandered around. I had, a, I had quite a lot of injuries. When I was 15, I played for the under-16 Australian team and I, and I um, uh, copped a horrible tackle when I came back home. And so my, that smashed my cruciate ligament. That was in 1985. So a cruciate, uh, you know, um, surgery back in those days was very different to today. You know, it was like a, it was like a you know, a 12-inch scar. And it took me a long time to get back from that. And uh, after that, I had uh, broken bones, broken feet. You know, a lot of things. So I, I came to Sydney, Croatia, Adelaide City. You know, I, I spent a little bit of time in Asia um, and ultimately ended up playing for Australia and, you know, on to, um, on to England. When you were playing in Asia, what was the perception of Australian players at that time? Well, it was a period in the late 80s, uh, kind of early 90s, 91, 92, where in Southeast Asia, uh, there was this great hunger for Australian players, particularly those who were playing for Australia. I hadn't quite uh, yet by that point, but and uh, there was uh, this uh, kind of growth, exponential growth of Southeast Asian football, and they they were all coming to Australia, you know, picking up your Alan Davidsons, you know, who was a legend of Selangor in Malaysia, you know, Alistair Edwards, who was you know a legend for both Johor and Singapore. I went over and played for Singapore and then a club in Hong Kong recruited me and I ended up in Hong Kong and that's something you would never, ever contemplate. You wouldn't call it a great career move, but it was amazing from a life perspective, you know, spending some time in Asia, uh, learning the cultures and and meeting the people. Hong Kong in particular was brilliant because it's on the doorstep of, of China. Uh, you know, at that time it was two systems that were still, you know, under the um, governance of um, the British and I was there just prior to the handover in 1997. I think I left in 95 or something. Um, and so seeing that and living through it and, and you know, living with Hong Kong, Hong Kongese, as, as we call them, they call themselves Hong Kong Chinese, and also spending a lot of time in China, it was very important to see the world, understand different cultures, and that's what football gives us. And in the end, I decided to come back and play for Australia, so I came back, played for Adelaide City, the reason being they were the champions, and I said to Zoran Matic, you guys are the best in the country. You've got seven internationals in the team. I want to play for you. And I knew if I played and played well for them and made the grade with them, so to speak, I was about 24, I knew I'd play for Australia, and that's what happened. You said that you had to come back to Australia to play for Australia. Was that because performances were really difficult to track when you were playing overseas? Yeah, it was very, very different. You know, you didn't have back in that all the social media and so on. Um, and so Australia was kind of not aware of what was going, but also just the standard of the football. You know, it was, um, you know, it was great fun. It was wonderful to be there. But, of course, you knew in, in at that time as well that that was not a great career path. Um, you know, I still have very fond memories of Singapore today. I, you know, I love the place. I love the people. And quite often, well, um, you know, from time to time, not often, but from time to time, people would just stop you on the streets. So I'm Singaporean and I was there and we used to go, you know, they used to have 65,000 people in the stadium every week. I mean, they just, you know, everyone in Australia now knows that Asia loves football. Well, we tasted that in very early times and, and we built relationships throughout Asian football. 
um, you know, the players that we played with and, um, you know, have now gone on to administrate and run clubs and run associations and all those things. So it was a very powerful gift that football gave us. It was understanding. It was network. It was, um, it was life experience. So it was really fantastic. But, you know, it, it, you had to make a choice. Many went there after they were already in the national team and I hadn't done that. I was still trying to kind of rebuild my career after all the injuries. So it was a good platform for me to get back to playing well, rebuild confidence and, and find my way of playing. And then, and then I said, okay, that's enough. A few years here is good. It's been wonderful, but I need to get back home and pull on the Socceroos jersey. You came back to our shores with the tools and the development you required. What, what were you doing? What do you remember from when you were told that you'd be playing for the Socceroos? Um, I can't recall that exactly. Um, you know, I pretty much knew it was coming because, you know, I'd been playing well and I'd been scoring a, quite a few goals uh, for Adelaide City. And, um, and, you know, and I knew that, you know, I was starting to make some waves, which is what you need to do, you know. And that's what I often say to players. You know, many of the players, whether it's in young national teams, and I've done a fair bit of coaching there, um, you know, with Football New South Wales, you know, for I think five, six years, with the best young, many of the best young talent in the country, and they'll often miss out on a team. And I say to them, well, it's too bad. I've got no sympathy for you. And they say, oh, well, I should be there, this and that. I say, no, the rule is simple. The only thing that you have to do is be so good or play so well that they can't leave you out. You have to, as an athlete, take it in many ways out of the hands of the coach or out of the hands of the politics or... And so you have to stand out. And if you don't stand out enough, you know, you have to be in the position where if you don't make, if you're not selected, people are going to say, well, how did that happen? Um, and if you're not doing that, then there's not really a lot that you can say. And, and that was my attitude. And so that year, you know, I had pretty much done that. I was scoring as much, if not more, as any midfielder. Um, and we were doing well. You know, sadly, we lost the uh, grand final uh, that year. Um, to a brilliant Mark Baduka team, but um, it was good. So, look, you know, I was pleased to play. I played against Ghana across in South Africa. You know, that was many of my friends. I was 26, and I was kind of reunited with many of the friends who I'd played in juniors and all these things, and they progressed on, uh, you know, like Paul Trimboli, for instance, a brilliant player, and they progressed in a seamless manner, and I had, and I had other challenges to face. Um, but we came back together when I was about 26 years old, and so it was good. You know, it was pretty special. That four-year period, 96 to 2000, 29 caps for the Socceroos, nine goals, what do you treasure the most? Uh, just, just the experience, you know, because you, you know, just the achievement itself, because you set out to do that, you know, and when you set out to achieve something in life, um, you know, you want to make sure that you get there, and... It can take time, and you have to fight for that. It, it, it doesn't always come easy. Sometimes it does, um, but, you know, for, for, for some and in, in other areas of life, you know, it, it has come, you know, far easier for me in other, other types, broadcasting, for instance. But, um, you know, when you, when you set your mind to it and you spend, you know, several decades, um, you know, aspiring to something, it's just good in your life overall to be able to achieve that because you you take that and then you build on it and you and you learn lessons from it and um, I've certainly um, done that. 
1997 at the MCG, the Socceroos versus Iran. That was my first ever football match that I watched on TV. Luckily, I had access to SBS, so I could watch it. How often do you reflect on that game, our qualification for France, and does it get more bearable with time? I don't ever reflect on it. Um, and no, it doesn't get more bearable with time. Um, I, you know, I just don't think about it. You know, it was, it was a, a, a very, very weird night. Um, it was kind of a one-off. You know, this this guy had run onto the field, and and you know, I, I don't know why. I don't spend time wondering why it happened, how it happened. Uh, you know, what's the meaning of why it happened? Uh, I just think. Um, that it, it's a shame in the respect that we had a really good team and we actually could genuinely have done something at that World Cup. And we showed that only a month later in the Confed Cup where we made the final. We beat Mexico, Uruguay. You know, and Terry Venables was a very, very fine coach, one of the best. You know, we, you can debate what happened on that night um, in, in against Iran, but, you know, one of the finest coaches Australia's had. I mean, you know, I, I would say um, tactically... In terms of his management of players, yes, but tactically he was really outstanding in terms of system of play. And, and that was also part of my journey in the tactical sense learning. Zoran Matic was, the, was one of the best in Australia and he was quite brilliant. And then Terry Venables was on another level again. Uh, and he, he knew opponents, he knew our strengths, he knew how to create a system, he knew how to create a style. He was ahead of his time in Australia. And if we had have gone to France then, you know, people would have, you know, it would have been really interesting. Nevertheless, the, the game wasn't ready for us to qualify. That's the truth. It was an absolute mess. And only a couple of years later, of course, the entire game collapsed. So our prize money from making it would have kept alive a corrupt and um, incompetent administration. So it's probably better we didn't. In 2001, Australia also uh, fell to Uruguay to qualify for the 2002 World Cup. You were still a, still a player at the time for Northern Spirit. Do you remember how you followed that two-legged playoff? Where were you watching that from? Uh, no. No, I can't remember. I can't remember. But I had around that time, I had, a, um, I had another knee reconstruction. And, um, you know, by that time, I had two knees that were pretty ordinary, and I was slowing down and, uh, and pretty much trying to hang on. You did move on to uh, to retiring and moving to SBS, where you, you were able to join absolute legends of of football journalism here in Australia with Johnny Warren, Les Murray. How was it joining them, coming pretty much fresh from being a player yourself? Mm. It was a kind of um, it was like a parallel world. You know, I stepped out of the change room and the change room was always to me a, a bit of a dual-edged sword. You know, I, I love the camaraderie. I love the team, the sense of team. And that's why I was, a, you know, that's why I'm a former chairman of the Players Association because I love, look, you know, looking after people. I love making sure the small ones in the group are going to be, we're going to be protected. That sense of team was always incredibly important to me. A lot of it um, was a bit different, though. I had other interests. So, you know, I was studying law on buses when, you know, when, when you know, others were, you know, doing other things. So I had I had a very different set of interests to most players. And so I kind of would connect in and out, you know. Um, 
and I spent a lot of my time, you know, outside of the game in different different areas. And so I was ready to step into SBS, was a, a different field and different thinking, but very much aligned with my values. So SBS became my, my new home because multiculturalism, A, but because they wanted multiculturalism reflected through football. And that was entirely consistent with my worldview at that time and today. And that was that football is this beautiful crucible of every um, ethnicity, culture, religion around the world, and that through football we all collaborate and do so in a, in a, a fair and um, understanding manner, and that football is very much a, a metaphor for you know, how the world should be, and that's what SBS was all about. And then you know, I got the opportunity on the 2002 World Cup. Uh, Johnny suggested that I come in to Les. They said, all right. I came and sat on the couch with those guys and I got to hear all of their discussions and, and, and um, you know, and I kind of, it was all consistent with what I thought. Now, I hadn't really grown up with them like everyone else, right? I only knew them from kind of the age of 15, 16, um, but I had independent views and I was more than capable of just going on that show and starting to talk in, you know, about what I, I, I loved them but I also was there to, to talk, you know, give my views, and Johnny respected that, and we, I'd already known him a bit anyway, but we hit it off immediately, and as did Les, and, um, and away we went. The World Game show on Sunday afternoons for six hours was just absolute heaven for football fans. It was a lot of fun, and you could see the passion that was exuded, and uh, it was a time of great upheaval in the game because there was that transition to the A-League, the Crawford Report, what were some of the challenges covering Australian football at that particular time? Well, the thing is, I also had a very broad perspective, which you know I was able to bring into the broadcast. So, for instance, I'd been a player, I'd been at the AES, I'd been under Australian coaches, good and bad. I'd been under one of the best, Zoran Matic. I'd been under some pretty horrible ones. Um, I'd seen you know team management, um, team culture, club culture. I knew how the NSL worked. I was a um, I already was a life member of the Players Association. I'd sat in on collective bargaining agreement negotiations because my great friend Brennan Schwab, you know, I was on board, I was on the executive, I was very close to him and, uh, you know, and I would accompany him to meetings with Labazetta and, and uh, everyone else at, at uh, Soccer Australia as it was at the time. So even while I was playing, I was in negotiating bargaining um, meetings around schedule, rights, uh, contractual arrangements, broadcast, um, building um, uh, equity and value in the marketing of the competition and the game, uh, culture, all of these things. So um, I, had, I had a very broad perspective by that time, but much broader than most players because I'd been in the boardroom as well as, you know, I'd been behind the scenes fighting for my teammates in the discussions, you know, whereas most players don't have to do that. I also had, you know, I'd been under Venables as a coach. I'd been across in England. I knew the English uh, football culture. I knew what Venables brought. I, I understood our own culture. I'd come through our best um, youth development platform by that time. So, you know, I was kind of able to, um, uh, you know, provide perspective that, you know, a lot of players didn't have because they just didn't have the same experiences. And I'd played in Asia um, so I understood, you know, to some extent, Asian football, the importance of us being there and all those things. So 
it was, um, you know, it was a, a great time. And after the 2002 World Cup, that was so successful that SBS said, oh, let's do a six-hour show. And we said, oh, wow, that's like heaven. <laughs> and we, we used to sit there. You know, we didn't talk the whole time. It was magazine, FIFA magazine show and other things. Yeah. But, you know, we used to sit there with Les, talk, get up, go. They'd put on a, an hour show from Italy, whatever, come back, talk again. Oh, it was just heaven. During the week, we'd be meeting. You know, what's what's you know what's happening this week? What's the big issue? You know, who, who what are we going to talk about? It was just you know, it was fantastic, and we had a great group: Andrew Osadi, um, you know, Les, Johnny in the early times before his very sad passing. Um, you know, Simon Hill came on board, came over from I think the BBC. Uh, you know, Steph Brands there at one time. Uh, you know, all of these people, and and uh, you know, we had Mariana Rudan came through and. And so we used to just do that show and then we'd go afterwards. You know, we didn't want to stop, right? So after every show, 12 to 6 p.m., at 6 p.m. we'd get in our cars, we'd all go down to Bondi here in Sydney <laughs> and we would continue the discussion till 1 in the morning. That was our Sunday. <laughs> no, yeah, that's but brilliant. But that's football, right? So the, the, one of the reasons, we, you know, we might have been right or wrong, but for football fans, the main point was they could see, and this, it hasn't changed today, they can see that whatever we're saying, we believe in the game and it comes from the right place. And you don't, you never had to agree with us. In fact, we would say, and I always say, well, don't agree with us. Just think yourself. Like you, you have independent thinking. Go and do some research and come up with your own view. That's the whole point of broadcast, right? But they could always know that with all of us there, it only came from one place and that was just really a place of good. Even those cameos from someone like Damien Lovelock, they were so entertaining, they were brilliant. Uh, you did mention Simon Hill there, and it's a good point now to, to turn to the 2006 World Cup campaign where the Socceroos were primed, and that November 2015 match against Uruguay, which goes down in history, obviously uh, yourself and, and, and Simon were in the commentary box uh, taking us through that match, how did you prepare for that as a commentator? Do you have notes or were you just purely on passion and, and, <laughs> and yeah, adrenaline? I know why you asked that question. But the thing is, a, a professional commentator like Simon, see, I'm not a commentator, okay? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a co-commentator or whatever. They have different terms for it. Simon, Dave Bashir, uh, you know, these guys, two of the best in the country, they do serious, serious work because they're professionals. But when I would go on a show, I would do very serious amount of work um, and research. And, um, you know, and quite often that's what made SBS special because people would come on the show and players and others and coaches would come on and then often they'd have nothing. And, we, you know, I would have reams of paper. So if, if Les mentioned anything, I would, have, I would have studied it and I would say, okay, well, this is happening. And, the, and when it came to those games, um, I would... Um, I would study the tactics of the team. I would do my job. So my job wasn't to know the the uh, backgrounds of all the players. That's for them. So that's why Simon and these guys are brilliant because, he, you know, they can go on for hours. Oh, I'm this player here and they used to do that. And when they were six, they had that and something happened and, you know, they had an hospital operation. <laughs> right? They've yeah. got reams of paper with them in front of them. Of course you have to, you know. And what Simon and, and those guys do is they'll have their opening and they'll, and they'll often have the close, different closings, you know, if they win, if they draw, if they lose. But they'll certainly have the opening. So the opening to a football game is usually a, a script that the commentators put in their own words. They develop it. You know, welcome today, here we are, and this is going on, and this 
team's not doing that, and we're looking forward to one, two, three. And so they get off on the, you know, they you have to start well. So they're very good at that, and then they kind of bring me in. Well, and then they want context. And now Craig, you know, with me is Craig, and Craig, well, this is just going to be, you know, whatever. Yes, this is right. And that's how it works. But that night um, was different a little because um, it was just too much pressure. It was too much pressure. Um, and those players were, many of them were my teammates. You know, we'd messed it up only, um, you know, not that long before. It was their last go, Tony Popovich and Spider and all my mates. It was their last go, okay? It was Australia's big one. We had hitting, you know, and Harry was at his peak and, you know, I mean, it was just too big. You know, I knew what was riding on that game. You know, the, the very future of the game was riding on that, as it turned out, 120 minutes and penalties. And Les took me aside two days before and he said, look, you need to make sure, you know, that you don't get too emotional and this and that. And then I said, well, I'm going to do my best, Les. Okay, I'm going to do my best. But, you know, I'm sorry. This is a massive game. <laughs> and as we got to the key points, you know, I just lost it. I completely lost my mind. And the thing is, from a, I've said many times, from a professional standpoint of being a co-commentator and former Socceroo, it was awful. But from a standpoint of actually capturing what it meant to me, because I'm a player and a fan, and what it meant to you, it worked because I just did what everyone else was doing at home. Sure. <laughs> and that was the reality. Yes. So I've seen, you know, there's obviously footage of John Travolta going yeah. in and congratulating all the players. Do you? How did you and Les sort of have that moment to to absorb it all? Yeah, we went to a hotel just with our SBS crew, and and you know, it's not for us going there with all the players and doing all those things. Um, you know, I, I, I might have gone out later in the evening. Actually, I think I went out and saw a bunch of the players um, later on um, that evening in Kings Cross. So um, at one of the one of the clubs there, and that was nice, but that was kind of after midnight. You know, we went to a hotel where we were where we were staying anyway, and um, and we, you just get the crew together. See, that's our team, right? So, you know, the first thing you do is thank and spend time and reflect and celebrate with your own team. So all of our people can they all care. The thing about SBS is everyone cared, right? They didn't work on that show or on that. You couldn't, you couldn't stand us. You couldn't be near us if you didn't love football. It just wasn't possible. You know, and plus, you wouldn't last because you've got to be able to contribute to the discussion. And so they all loved the game. And it was an opportunity for all of us just to go sit where everyone's drained and just kind of say, you know, wow. The, the coming months were going to be even greater with the World Cup and the fact that we were going to Germany 2006. What's your lasting memory of that tournament? Um, oh, gee, that's hard. I mean, that was a big one, you know. That was a big one. Um, I kind of remember um, that the way one of the – look, spending that whole time with Les, because that 2002 we were at home in studio. That was my first World Cup away, right? And we were in a hotel. We got all, in Berlin. We got all our staff there who we love. They're our friends. They're our family. We're spending every day talking about football. We're up in the morning and, and we would always hire a couple of local people, whoever. These happen to be students to interpret for us the front pages of the major build and the major newspapers. And we do that. We did that at every World Cup. 
And, um, you know, and so we would start the day, we'd be down there with this, you know, we'd be having coffee, you know, at seven in the morning, and then we'd people come in and tell us what the papers are, then we'd talk about what we're going to do on our first show, and then we'd stroll to the uh, studio, which was near the Berlin Wall, for heaven's sake, right? And, then, you know, it's this type of, <laughs> and I'm laughing because, you know, it's just, it's like you're in paradise, you know, it's like you're in Hollywood, um, you know, from a football perspective, you know, and the next, the next, um, uh, the good thing about broadcasters in the next booth right next door, they tend to build these big structures where they rent out to SBS and BBC and ESPN and everyone's there. So a lot of my friends from around the world are there, the broadcasters. Martin Tyler's there with us having breakfast. I mean, come on, you know. So that was a lot of, you know, a lot of the memories around that. And I also remember how people received Les. You know, I particularly remember, you know, because our first World Cup 32 years, the fans loved SBS and they particularly love Les, right, because they'd grown up with him. And every time an Australian fan saw him or a group of them, they'd sing or they'd mob him, or you know, and he loved it. He loved it because he'd earned it. You know, he'd earned that over a very long period of that fighting for the game. And I was really pleased by that. I just thought it was wonderful for the old guy. He's, he's basically getting the support and care that he deserves. I particularly remember after each game, the the Japan match or whether it was Brazil or Italy, straight afterwards, it would be you and Les who would have to somehow, after that emotional roller coaster, articulate your thoughts. And you could just see your, both of your faces. You've just been through this amazingly emotional experience and having to distill your, your views. That must have been challenging at times. Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, it is. It is. Because you're also conscious. Like, there's millions of people watching back at home. If you say something really stupid, you know, you look like a complete goose. And it's always entirely possible, right? Especially when you're full of emotion. Um, and, you know, none of us, we all live that together. Like, and that's the thing about television. Like, when the good thing about that World Cup is it came after a few years. I'd been on air also a few years, and people had got to know me, you know, and we'd built this relationship because that's what television's about. People learn, people either learn to trust you or not trust you, right? And I think the football community trusted us, and so we were able to talk to them, and everyone came on the journey that we we're experiencing. That's when, that's when TV is magic. Because people knew us, they knew our views, they knew how much we we were just living the experience. They knew how much we would be feeling the emotion. You see, so it wasn't about the comments. It was about you know these guys have gone through hell, or they've gone through with us. So we were all in it together, and uh, it's difficult to find the right words at those times. Very very difficult, um, and you just do your best that you possibly have. But the Italy game. Yeah, those moments are hard because we're crying. You know, we're crying. Yeah. I mean, people are crying at home. But we're the same. You know, we could just be sitting next to you. It's no different. It's just that I played and Les is a journal. So we're crying. And what happened is we went down in the thing and we saw that penalty and we were underneath the stadium getting ready to go to extra time and go on air, say, well, this is going to extra time, right? <laughs> yeah, and then what happened is, um, you know, and that's happened and all the crew stopped. And, and within a couple of minutes, people are in tears. So when Les asked me that question, asked me then, well, you know, what the hell's going on, whatever he asked, I don't know, I never watch it back. Um, I, all I distinctly remember is trying not to look at him because I knew we were both going to break down like children. And I was thinking, oh, man, this is going to be bad. Right? We're actually going to start crying. <laughs> that, that was what happened. 
that 2006 World Cup inspired me to finally hop on the plane and go to 2010 in, in South Africa. And I took a book with me called Foz on Football. Uh, ten years oh. later, how do you... Ref- actually, that book was very very optimistic about our future. It had a chapter about winning the World Cup ultimately. How do you reflect on on football now, 10 years on from, from writing that? Uh, it's, um, look, a lot of great stuff's happened, but uh, the same core problems are still there, and that is we keep just going in circles. And um, for some reason it seems to be us and Rugby Australia. They're in worse um, position than us right now. They're a bit of a mess, but we were a mess, you know, back in 2001 again. And we've still got the same political problems. The game's become deeply politicised again. Everyone's grabbing for what it is that they want. Um, and, you know, unity is only skin deep, right? And that's been the history of the game. Um, and I think that much of that is around structure. So I never lose optimism. Um, I believe that we can, and in fact I do think that we will get there. Um, but, you know, we, we, we make it difficult. Um, and it's going to take, you know, further reform. I'm interested in the journey you've taken or the steps in becoming a coach and how your life experiences have influenced your football philosophy. Mm. Um, well, I, I believe, as people well know, I believe that Australia um, has a, the competitive capability to win on the world stage. I also believe that Australia winning a World Cup will be the greatest sporting achievement ever, ever. Thirdly, I believe that the Australian government should invest in Australia winning in the biggest sport in the world because that's actually genuine nation building. Um, and I'd played under coaches who, so that, that informs part of the view, is what is going to get us to win. Okay. The other thing is, part of my view is, so it's not only purely competitive, but that's a very big slice of it. But another one is about... Um, inculcating the game and selling the game, if you like, to all Australians and, and um, you know, reaching the potential that we know that the game has. So that's, that has to have a certain style of play, right, because I've seen what happened with other national teams. You know, people used to love the Wallabies. I loved the Wallabies when Campo was there. And, um, and then they lost their way. And um, so I believe in a certain sporting culture in Australia, um, I think it suits us. And so those discussions we've had many times on SBS. And so that informs my view. And then what I did is I went abroad to learn. In fact, I brought Amir Jacquet here in 2005 to learn from them because they had the best academy in the world as a centralised game academy. I'm not talking about individual clubs here. And uh, so I, bought, uh, I wrote to Amir Jacquet, who was the TD. He, he won the 98 World Cup. And he was the TD of France at that time. And I wrote a letter to him with a French friend who, uh, who translated. I said, mate, we need your help. We need you to get out here. This is an incredible sporting culture. We believe we can win, but we don't quite know what we're doing. And so get yourself out here and give us a lecture on what you guys do and how you produce what you do. And, um, and so I've always been very interested in this, this um, concept of culture being expressed through the game, as you know from Fosland Football, the book. Um, you know, how we play as we are, okay? You know, and, and um, you know, if we're just head down, belligerent, crash or crash through type of people, that's how we play football. You don't, you don't play like Socrates if you're someone that has no regard for others, uh, you know, in social life, uh, who, you know, uh, treats people poorly, who just bashes through, you know. <laughs> so you tend to find that, you know, the people are the player. You know, not always, not always, but the countries are also 
the team. The countries are also the style. Okay, and Brazil's the great best example of that. They're still struggling today with this concept of a Jinga and Joga Bonito. It's a bit like the Dutch. The Brazilian are like the Dutch. They've got this history of beauty that they're just not sure quite what to do with. Australia can create our own history uh, and our own way, but it has to be consistent with who we are. So that's informed all of my work. I, I loved, I, I don't anymore currently, although I do have a pro license, but I was about six years or something like that at Football New South Wales and uh, with the best you know, female and males in the country, and um, or many of them. And um, that was great. You know, I loved coaching. I, you know, as you see in my social work, I, I enjoyed working with the young players. I, I, you know, I care about the young players and what they're doing, not just in their career. And so, um, you know, I would, I would spend significant time helping them build their career, their education and, and all the other things. So it was great. You mentioned the social work uh, and that's been something that you've, you've had to think about. I've read quotes where you've said that uh, you've thought very deeply about um, advocating for Indigenous Australia, asylum seekers and encouraging Australia to be a more open an um, inclusive society, and that's been hard to do as a, as an elite coach. So now your work is in the social justice area. Yeah, I, I really wanted to talk about uh, the the indigenous football programs that you've been involved with. Yeah. So um, when I when I decided the game's in a bit of a mess, and so I had better. Um, you know, try and make a contribution at governance level. I had to then, as a conflict of interest, you know, give up the coaching side. And, uh, you know, I know I haven't gone back because one of the issues with coaching um, is that if you want to coach junior national teams, for instance, which I would really enjoy, um, and I'd had many of those kids, um, then you're beholden to FFA. Okay? And, and clearly my, my views don't always accord with them. And, and you know, I, I think it's important to have people speaking out on behalf of and advocating for different things in the game. So that's not going to work. And then if I went to a professional club, well, then, you know, I can't really say much. So, you know, I know I've worked in Indigenous rights, Indigenous programs, refugees, asylum seekers, homelessness, all of these things I feel strongly about. And I was finishing my law degree and I just thought, look, it's just not going to work because I, I want, I need to be able to speak up on behalf of asylum seekers who are basically being tortured offshore. So, you know, that, you know, my role is broader and, um, and it was always going to be. So um, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's life. That's where my, my life has gone and I enjoy advocating. I think I have a responsibility to advocate for a, a lot of people in society who don't have what we have. Um, and the Indigenous programs in football is, are very important to me. So when I was at Adelaide City as a young player, I would have been 25, I met John Moriarty because his um, son, James, was in the youth team. And I went to coach the youth team once, and this shows you what football is like. This is why sport is so very, very important in society. It's not everything. Sport, over, sport overestimates its impact sometimes, but it is extremely important. James was in the team. I went to coach them, and I got to know the family, and that's 1994 or so, 95. Um, so, you know, that's 25 years. And since then, you know, I've been involved with them. I'm a director of their organisation and, and they have built, um, and I've tried to help where I can, uh, built uh, John Moriarty Football from Borrelula out, Robinson River and others, and now they're in Queensland and expanding. And uh, that's very important to me. I want to see, and uh, you know, but see, this is the point. It's not enough for me to advocate for that in football. 
what I want to do is advocate for Indigenous rights and reconciliation at national level, at political level. So, you know, I, I'm in, you know, involved with various people around the Uluru Statement and other things in relation to the reconciliation of Australia, colonisation and, and what's happened for 232 years with what happened for 65,000 years before. And that is, and what I do is I use football in order to further those social issues because that is what football is about in my view. Why something I think about a lot and I was wondering what your thoughts are on this is why is human rights a struggle and why is it not just the status quo and the way things are norm- as as it should be. Yeah. Well, it's it, that's what I often say. Look, it's ridiculous. They, they say, "Oh, you crave former former this former soccer broadcaster, human rights advocate." And I always say, "What an odd term." that you have to actually advocate for the rights of humans. Yes. I mean, it's really extraordinary. The answer to it is very complex. There's geopolitical issues. There's geo-religious issues. Some areas of the world, um, you know, p- particularly um, Arab nations and the Muslim world, for instance, some of those feel as though they're not, uh, you know, part of or consistent with what they see as a Western construct of human rights. Okay, which came out of the UN, that there were some Arab nations actually involved in the construction of that along with, um, I think it was Doc Wyatt, who was an Australian, who was one of the leaders, which is ironic seeing where we are human rights now in Australia. Um, so there are some broader issues around uh, inclusion and buy-in and you know collaboration between all of the countries, religions and cultures in the world to the human rights instruments. But on a national level, they simply get politicised. So, um, you know, when it comes, um, you know, immigrants, for example, and refugees have human rights under international instruments. But if you are a government, and there are many around the world and many in Australia in the last 20 years and and prior, um, who uh, had different ideological views on what should occur, um, and for whatever political reasons, this is not, we don't have time to get into it, um, they they need to essentially breach what are the universal human rights of those people, those people to uh, seek votes from a certain part of the population um, who want to um, you know treat them in the view of the human rights community improperly. Uh, Craig, I'm very mindful of your time, and there's some things around the Hakim Al Arabi scenario which I just wanted to discuss. If that's fine with you. Yeah. There was one around. Uh, that the intimidation factor you are going up against some really really powerful bodies uh, countries states how have you navigated that was there ever any any danger at any stage well yes um but i simply believe that you know it was necessary to do and that's you know that's kind of what underpins everything i do i believe that asylum seekers and refugees in australia right now need strong advocacy there is risk that comes with that on a, on a number of levels, but it's it's the right thing. Um, they need it, and um, I'm in a position to give it. And you know, I can't finish my life looking back and saying, "Well, you know, I didn't do it." And and Hakim was really like that. You just have to make a decision as to how important it is to you. Do you believe in it? And if so, you have to take risk. People take risk for human rights and for other people every day. I mean, that's why they have. Um, international instrument around human rights defenders. So if you defend Hakim, you defend uh, the human rights of other 
citizens in countries like Bahrain, you, you're just detained. You're arbitrarily detained, likely tortured and other things. So human people who stand up for other humans around the world are very often the ones who are attacked, a bit like journalists. Journalists get the truth out and therefore di- dictatorial and authoritarian governments around the world, the first people they attack are the journalists because they can tell the truth. The second ones that they attack are the people who are fighting for their own fellow citizens um, and getting the truth out about the way they're being treated, whether that's in jail or just in general society. So this field is full of people who take an immense amount of risk, far more than I took there. Right? Um, but, yes, we had, um, whilst we didn't have actual threats, um, we had people uh, kind of staking out our house at one point. When I went to Bangkok, there was some feeling that, you know, I may have been jailed because um, Thailand does, does not uh, view human rights defenders and human rights with any great affection. And, in fact, many of the big NGOs are still struggling there to get a real foothold. They treat refugees horribly like many countries around the world. This is Thailand I'm talking about. So when I went there, they, I, we'd already been campaigning and Amnesty felt that, you know, there was a quite significant risk that they might just throw me in jail because I was making noise, I was embarrassing them, and I was a human rights defender. So we had a plan to get out of Thailand on the train, and I carried my passport with me all the time and those types of things. So we try to mitigate the risk as much as possible, and, you know, and you just have to make that decision. Like, is it, you know, is this worth doing or is it not worth doing? And so I... Yeah, I had to put my, I made sure I put my, because there's also other people involved. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a question of a kind of selfish decision. You know, I had my family. So, you know, we, we had meetings around it. You know, what do you think? What are we going to do? And we ended up putting all of our affairs in order enough that my wife could carry on and not be, you know, I needed to make sure I had things in place. So I put it off a week or so before I went to make sure that we were prepared if I, you know, ended up. You know, After such an intense campaign, uh, intensive as well, I'm interested in how you navigate social media because it's such a powerful enabler, but also it can take a toll in terms of time and, and managing um, those yeah. platforms. Oh, well, it was, that was in, in, the, in the start was hard. Well, right throughout it was very intense because we were running a global campaign. So that means it's basically 24 hours a day. So um, a number of ways, but... Um, I learned a tremendous amount about how to do so during that campaign. Um, but one thing, what I guess the answer, best answer I could give you is this. What you see on social media is not always real. What you see on social media is, is very often has an ulterior motive, has someone behind, an organisation behind. There's quite often very significant resources and work going in to a tweet of a person who may or may not be real. And so I knew and I discovered quickly uh, that Bahrain and others were utilising different companies and different ways to manage social media. It's not people just putting a tweet out is, is you know, that's, that's on the surface, right? And, and general citizens are doing that, but you've heard about the Twitter bots in Russia and all these things. So, yes. so there's, a, there's a whole industry around getting information out, influencing social media and so on, and Bahrain were a bit of a part of that. So I created my own team, and I had about 10 people who I didn't know. I met them after, after he was back, and I organised that team. I gave them messages every day uh, through DMs, and they would drive different agendas that I needed to happen throughout that campaign. And, and they were people who clearly were clever, 
They were well-educated. They knew human rights. They were aligned in values with me. They felt strongly about the case. They, you know, and they'd kind of been saying, look, Craig, what do you need? I'm happy to follow you and this and that. And so I, I kind of carefully over a, a few weeks or more put together a bit of a group of them. And then, you know, and I drove them or led them, if you like, and gave them the information every single day. So I'd give some information to the public and I'd give other information to them. So, for example, I could say something publicly about the Australian government um, and I could manage that fine line between diplomacy and, you know, activism. And But I could have them attacking anyone that was necessary. Okay? So, in other words... You know, I ran a whole campaign agenda from behind the scenes, even while I was the most visible. And that's one big reason why we won. I love that in the aftermath, you said that the fight has only just begun. Um, what does that mean to you? And how's that um, taking place now? Yeah. yeah, there was two things I'll talk about there. One is refugees and asylum seekers. You know, he was a refugee and they've been horrendously, heinously treated by Australia in recent decades over many governments um, and so that needs to change so I felt an obligation still do to try and change the narrative with Australian people around that and secondly I was talking also about sport governance you know we had to go and meet I had to go meet with people to get them to actually act um, the head of the AFC Sheikh Salman did zero in fact he, he ridiculously recused himself at a really opportune time for him the day after Bahrain submitted their paperwork. And so I raised that directly with FIFA. So there's issues around governance and ethics in that campaign which have never been dealt with. No one's surprised by that because he's a vice president of FIFA. Um, but even the actions of FIFA throughout, um, you know, the level of advocacy that they were or were not prepared to give to a kid who was essentially going to die, they're important issues. We had an election not long after that where Sheikh Salman was unanimously returned, despite the fact that he did nothing to stand up for a player, which has to be the first obligation of a sports administrator, uh, he was returned unanimously, including with Australia's vote, to the uh, presidency of the AFC. And that tells you everything about global sport and about global football. So there is a fight that is ongoing um, to ensure that uh, football can live up to its commitment to human rights, which is in its constitution, but currently about which it cares nothing. Craig, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, there's so much terrain that we could even do in a part two, but uh, this was a fantastic conversation. Uh, what's next for you at the moment? What's keeping you excited? Um, yeah, I'm always, I'm always excited because I only do things that I feel passionate about. So, you know, I still, I'm still with SBS. We don't have a lot of football at the moment, but we do have the next World Cup and other, other things will be coming up. So at the moment I'm working on this project around sport and society. So I'm talking to uh, people in sport or outside of sport, academics, about how sport affects society. I've joined uh, Torrens University as an adjunct professor of sport and social responsibility. So I'll start some lecturing soon as well. So that's an opportunity to work on this concept of what sport should be doing for society. And I intend to write a new module um, and top University have 70 universities around the world as part of the Laureate Group. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, I'm talking about, you know, these concepts of, you know, what sport should do, whether sport, um, you know, fulfills its social responsibility or not, whether the social programs sport runs are effective or whether they're just, you know, slogans and marketing, 
uh, and you know how could we better influence the world in a positive way through global sport in particular. So I'm going to do some professorship on that, and, I'm, and that's going to be fun. Uh, and you know, I'm at the moment I'm working on uh, you know helping asylum seekers, refugees through the Game Over campaign with uh, Amnesty, which is very important personally to me and I think to Australia. So all of these issues, I, I like to work on things that I think is going to get Australia to a better place. Indigenous rights is important. You know, I, I'll, I'll, in the next couple of years, I'll spend some time on that. And at the moment, I'm working on a Play for Lives, which is just a movement to encourage sport to um, respond uh, in a, a humanitarian sense to the COVID crisis, both here around the, and around the world. And we've got some, some things coming on board in New Zealand, in India, um, I think likely in US and Australia is going great. So, you know, we've got, for instance, the Brisbane Raw fans are, are leading up in Brisbane to feed 600 international students and migrant workers. And that's just, that's absolutely marvellous. We've got projects and leaders uh, popping up all around the country, working with Variety, Victoria, Queensland, Meals on Wheels, volunteering uh, and keeping people fed and alive. So, you know, that's been important. So when the pandemic hit, my first response is, okay, well, how can sport help? What do we need to do now? And that's why I've created that response. Um, and that response has resonated globally at the Centre for Sport and Human Rights and others. And we'll have discussions in future about how we can make this more substantive on an ongoing basis. So there's plenty to do. Thank you for the work you do, Craig. Is there an ask you have of our audience? Um, I would say... Yes, look, think about what's happening with refugees and asylum seekers in the country. You know, you're all, if, we're, if we're talking about football here predominantly, um, football is, is one of the most important social vehicles for Australia to get into a better place. Every team that you have, you probably have a refugee or asylum seeker in it. You hopefully have an Indigenous Australian in it. Um, you hopefully have a Rohingya uh, you know, or a Muslim in it. Okay, so, in a, so different cultures, different faiths. Uh, different visas, so you probably have a migrant worker, you probably have a refugee uh, who was on a protected visa. So that's what football is. Football is a microcosm of the world and is a beautiful one. We play in an equal manner under the same rules. And what I'd ask of you is this. If you're going to play with those people and you're going to say, well, you know, you're a brother or a sister and we're playing football together and we're all in one community, well, then you're obligated then to help them and their community. If we're all in this together, as you know, Australia is so fond of saying, well, that means we have to help them. So, what? What are you going to? You know, if you're playing with a Rohingya player, well, what are you going to do for all the Rohingyas who are in trouble? You know, one of the most uh, demonised, uh, you know, minorities, religious minorities in the world and cultural. You know, what are you going to do for the asylum seekers and refugees who are still in detention centres even during COVID? Because, you know, Australia's looked away and said, well, we all want to be safe, but we don't really care if they're safe. Well, what are you going to do? If you know a refugee, that means you know refugees. So it's not enough. Sport is about com competing, yes, but it's more about getting to know each other, learn each other and help each other. And that means we have to step up in society through sport and say, and that's what I say all the time. I say, well, listen, I sat next to Les Murray. I played with a refugee. You know, I, I know the, the Muslim community. I play football with them. And, and they're my teammate, and they're the same as me. So why is the media treating you in this way? I don't accept it. And no one in football should accept any discrimination in Australia or elsewhere because that's not what the game's about. That's what football offers to Australia, that sense of equality, that sense of community, that sense of team, that sense of shared humanity. 
think about it, reflect on it, and step up the next time someone's in trouble. Thank you, Craig, for sharing this very personal and very, uh, very powerful message that will hopefully inspire many people. So I hope you have a very good evening. Thank you so much for joining us on Frio de Janeiro. My pleasure. Hey, everyone, wherever you are in the world, thanks heaps for listening to Frio de Janeiro. You can visit the show website, abidimam.com, A-B-I-D-I-M-A-M, for all of the show goodies. You can subscribe, leave a review. appreciate it very much. And until the next episode, keep smiling, keep scoring.